Welcome to the Workplace Evolution Podcast, in association with Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group. Welcome back, everyone, to the Workplace Evolution Podcast with me, Michael Costello, and I've missed you guys. I know it's been too long since our last recording, but I promise I'll make it up to you with some incredible guests for 2021, such as the BBC technology expert and journalist Rory Seffen-Jones, psychologist and former NBA basketball star John Amici, and someone who changed the face of British politics forever, Nigel Farage. So, if you have a question you'd like me to ask, please, please do get in touch. This year, though, starts with the Harvard Business School professor and Palladium advisor, Dr. Robert Kaplan, a man who made strategy a little simpler for all of us alongside his colleague, David Norton, when they introduced the balanced scorecard. This is a concept that every business leader should be aware of and one that we define and explain at the start of our discussion. Robert has now evolved the scorecard concept to support businesses in contending with what he sees as ever increasing societal and environmental obligations, particularly at a time when the UK still has serious issues with COVID, child poverty, adult learning, unemployment and digital inequalities. This was of real interest to me. We discussed how businesses have worked in their community to manage these issues, but also societal pressures on pharmaceutical giants rolling out the vaccine right now. We also discussed his beliefs on what organisations and governments will really need to discuss at the COP conference coming to the UK this year to tackle climate change and meet Bill Gates' demands of going carbon zero by 2050. Our discussion starts with us exploring the changes that Robert has seen during his incredible 35 years at Harvard Business School. But before we head over, remember one thing, enjoy the podcast. You know, the community, the culture, the mission has really stayed the same, but the players change. So uh, the composition of the faculty and the composition of the students is quite different than it was 35 years ago. The kind of jobs that they had before they came to Harvard are very different. Uh, in the mid-1980s, people were coming from uh, manufacturing companies, uh, automobile companies, coming to engine, Procter & Gamble. Now it's much more technology uh, and, and also nonprofits. Commitment with, you know, to the social enterprises, parts of things. Yes. Uh, obviously more international, more women. So the composition, both I think of the faculty and the student body it, it has changed, but still teaching by the case method, still grounded in practice, uh, still yep. trying to teach from, learn from the innovations in practice uh, yes. and communicate that with the MBA students and our executives. So we have a, a much more expanded executive program as well. And they've got some good people as well to advise them on strategy, no doubt. Yep, yeah, and many of whom I learned from. You have had a considerable impact, Robert, over the years on business, business strategy with your colleague, David Norton, particularly with the introduction of the balanced scorecard, of, of course. I thought a good place to start would be for those that don't know what this is. Could you give us a brief explanation about the balanced scorecard, what it does, what it is? OK, that's a short question and may have a somewhat extended answer given its scope. <laughs> So Dave Norton and I came together in 1990. He was running a consulting company. I was an academic. And, and the goal was to think about performance measurement for the 21st century corporation. 
And so if you think about from 1800 till about 1990, uh, the corporations that really succeeded were ones based on uh, physical assets or financial assets. Uh, and the system for measuring and managing them were based on uh, the physical assets of property, plants and equipment or inventory for retailers or financial assets for uh, banks and other financial services organizations. But you're already seeing the growth of companies you know, coming in that depended on really their employees uh, and uh, customer relationships and innovation and quality. Uh, so a whole set of factors were driving business performance that were not linked to financial or physical assets. Uh, but yet the evaluation system, the financial accounting system, was completely based on physical and financial assets and not on what accountants called the intangible assets. And you already get a clue there that accountants are clueless about these assets because rather than tell you what they are, they tell you what they're not. They're intangible. So accountants are most comfortable when they can check inventory and kick the tires in the plant and uh, count yes. cash. And they're very uncomfortable if they have to think about things like employee capabilities and quality and innovation and customer loyalty. So we felt, well, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And, and these were the drivers of success that what was showing up on balance sheets were like one third or 25 percent of the total value of companies, their market capitalization. It was we were just missing a lot. And yeah. so the balance scorecard was designed to first retain financial uh, measurements because they're still valid for what they do, but to supplement them with measures on customers. So that was a whole second perspective. Who are our customers? Are we being successful with them? What are the critical processes we have to do in order to create value both for customers and shareholders? And those processes include quality and innovation and customer relationships. And then the fourth perspective, uh, we, we called it learning and growth because we just didn't want to call it employees because it was more than employees. It, it was certainly the employees, but also information and systems and culture, mm -hmm. uh, the most intangible assets of all. And yet these are the foundation of enhancing our processes that will deliver ultimately value to customers and shareholders. Yeah, and this was a big deal at the time. It, it might sound like a, a no-brainer now. And we, we've we've spoken before, and we've said, you know, what gets measured gets done. But at the time, was it a bit of a storm when you were introducing the concept? Well, we didn't quite feel that because it, it made sense. I mean, it was so logical. And in fact, all of our MBA programs are based on that. I mean, if this wasn't true, we'd have to redesign all our MBA programs. Because certainly in MBA programs, we teach accounting and finance, but we teach marketing, require costs. Well, that's customers. And we teach operations, which is processes and innovation. And we teach yeah. human resources, which is people and information systems. So, you know, if, if this wasn't valid, we'd have to, you know, redesign all the MBA programs in the world. And it was just a question of picking up uh, the point, Michael, you said, is if these are important, then we should be measuring them. But we couldn't put a value on them. So the accounts got hung up. What's the value of an employee? What's the value of better quality? That's a hard question. It may be an impossible question to answer. Uh, you know, but Dave Norton and I were engineers originally, and we said, well, no, no, but we can still measure things even if we can't put a financial value. You know, I can measure defects. I can measure customer loyalty. I can measure uh, employee motivation. Uh, and so let's do that. And, and so we have the non-financial metrics. And, and the other part that went on and why there wasn't, we didn't feel 
much uh, angst when we introduced this, is about a half dozen uh, really wonderful companies showed up and said, this makes a lot of sense. Can you help us do that? Yeah. And fortunately, my colleague was a management consultant, so he established the business to help them implement uh, this in companies like Mobile and Cigna Insurance and Chase Bank uh, and FMC Corporation and Halliburton. And it turns out as you implement your ideas, you learn more about them. And so what happened is the concept just kept getting better and better. So when physicists discover something, you know, this is what Gra Newton did, uh, gravity. Uh, gravity stays the same, you know, forever. But the balanced scorecard is a management construct. And, and so we get to tweak it and, and make it better and enhance it. And, yes. and that occurred over the next 15 to 20 years as we worked very intimately with organizations, helping them implement it and learning from the executives with whom we worked. When I first saw it, you know, quite a few years ago now, like you say, it was intuitive. The clouds parted and you just got it. You just got it straight away. And it, and it made a very difficult concept easier to implement and to, to make you know, operational, to take the vision and the mission and then the values and actually start measuring it. And, and MBAs, as you say, uh, were changed thereafter forevermore. So the reason we're talking, the reason that we're, we're together as well, Robert, is, is to explore how you believe strategic thinking is evolving and how the balance scorecard is evolving. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about that then, please? So as we continue to work with organizations, uh, one of the extensions that went on is rather than just build the balance scorecard for our company, you know, we have these relationships with key suppliers and, and key customers uh, which are not transactional. I mean, they're longer term in their relationship. And can the balanced scorecard help us work better with the strategic suppliers and strategic customers? And as we responded to that, now we kind of uh, exceeded the traditional boundaries of the firm. Uh, and we started to use the scorecard to link uh, across organizational lines uh, and link suppliers and, and the company uh, not in transactional relationships and who who can sell me the cheapest tomorrow, mm -hmm. uh, but what what capabilities do we want the supplier to invest in? Have the supplier understand the company? You know, what where are your new products? And and similarly for companies going out to their customers, and so we we built scorecards for these alliances or joint ventures or longer term relationships across organizational lines. Uh, and, and that keys up, you know, where we're going to be going now is there's now an expectation of companies to be more engaged in society uh, and take on more of a societal role. Uh, and, and so that now we have another extension, which is as companies create their strategies, and, but also their scorecards, they have to think about how they interact, you know, with their external environment. I mean, at one level, they have to earn their legitimacy to keep operating and to show that they're not creating environmental or societal problems. Uh, but rather than just treat it as uh, kind of protecting yourself uh, from this, but actually be proactive. And the question is, can we find business strategies that might include people who have really been left behind by capitalism? So there's a lot of cynicism to capitalism uh, now. Uh, capitalism, you know, it's polluting the environment and it's destroying communities and it's outsourcing and automating. 
uh, and it's just creating uh, negative things to society. And of course, that's a limited perspective because if you look further back over the last 200 years, you know, it's been a capitalistic uh, operating system. You know, that's inf increased income and wealth tenfold or more and, and taken billions and billions of people out of poverty. I mean, 200 years ago, uh, 90, 95% of the population lived in po dire poverty. And now, you know, it's only eight or 10% that lives in dire poverty. You know, it's, it's remarkable. Now, that's still not good, uh, but you don't want to kill the engine that has been so powerful in improving uh, uh, not just income, but actually health and education and uh, society, all kinds of things. But they have to address these uh, downsides. And, and so in our current work, and that's what I'm doing with Palladium, is trying to work with companies to see actually there are this low-hanging fruit, or what the Chicago economists would say, there's a free lunch out there. There are actually <laughs> new business models, new strategies that we can connect better with people who have either lost, you know, become unemployed or underemployed during the last 40 years, as well as the almost nearly a billion people who have never gotten connected. Uh, to the yeah. global uh, system and are still living in the dire poverty. Most of them are smallholder farmers. Uh, and, and so we want to include them. But if we go back to the fundamentals of where Dave Norton and I were 30 years ago, if you want to do this, we better measure it. Yeah. And, and so we've expanded the uh, kind of the framework of the balanced scorecard to say we not just want to include financial performance, which all where we were before, but also we have to demonstrate we're delivering on environmental performance and societal performance. This is David Coulthard on the Workplace Evolution Podcast, the podcast that gets the listener up to speed on leadership and management. Michael, do you really want me to say that? Can I ask though, on, on a personal note, Robert, why is this important to you after, you know, 35 years you described working with Harvard and, and now now Palladium as, as well. Why is this so important to you? Well, Michael, we're doing this on a podcast uh, so you can see what I look like, but your viewers can't see what I look like. And most people who look like me uh, are on a golf course somewhere or on their boat. Uh, and so there has to be something that's keeping me away from those other types <laughs> of activities. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the years I now have, and fortunately to still be at the platform of the Harvard Business School and collaborations with innovative uh, companies uh, like Palladium, uh, I should only work on important problems, you know, work on problems that might make a difference in the world. That's great, Robert. Well, look, let's let's get stuck in and, and bring this concept to life. Which businesses have you worked with in your career that you feel have made a, a real difference to societal or, or even environmental issues? Uh, if I can just give you an example, this was one we included in our Harvard Business Review paper uh, 2018 on inclusive growth strategies. And, and they were hired by one of the international aid agencies to see if they could improve the well-being of uh, uh, impoverished farmers in Uganda. You know, 70 or 80 percent of the population in Uganda are agricultural and 80 or 90 percent of them are living on less than two dollars a day. So you dire poverty and they're inefficient, you know, so they're you know, using bad fertilizers and uh, crop protection that's polluting land and water. 
and they're very inefficient. They grow very low quality crops. Mm. So I got in there, they looked at, and, you know, in the same region of Uganda, you know, there was a fairly large brewery and brewery uses as part of its inputs, maize, corn, uh, that's a lot of the farmers were growing, but they didn't buy from any of the local farmers. They, they were importing it from South America. So, he, so here's kind of an anomaly, a mismatch between demand and supply. Here, here's a local company that needs high quality, high quantity of agricultural inputs. We have uh, millions of farmers producing agricultural outputs, and they're completely disconnected from each other. Uh, and, and for good reason at the time, you know, the, the products that were being grown by the local farmers were poor quality, unreliable quantity, so they're mm -hmm. importing it. And you think environmentally what's involved in moving large quantities of agricultural products from Argentina all the way to Kenya to get to a port and then offload it, get it on trucks and drive it across. And so who are the farmers selling to as a local aggregator, you know, who just took it and the spot prices ground it up and sold it for animal food. That was the only thing it was good for. And, and so they asked him, well, why don't you take that product and sell to the brewery? And he said, well, the brewery won't buy from us. They said, well, why not? I don't know. Well, let's find out. So they go with the aggregator to the brewery and says, what would it cause? Why don't you buy from them? Well, the product, you know, quantity is unreliable, quality is no good. What would it take for you to buy from them? And then they specify what quality they needed and what quantity they needed. But now they go to the, the aggregator and they say, well, why don't you get the farmers to produce it? He says, well, they don't know how to do it. You know, they're uneducated, they're unskilled. Teach them. You know, they gave them a small grant and said, why don't you teach them good agronomic processes? Uh, and they went to the government and the government for the government. And can you provide some simple financing or crop insurance so that the farmers could buy good quality seeds in advance? and get access to better quality fertilizers and uh, you know, more uh, environmentally friendly uh, pesticides and fungicides and, and teach them. And so they set up demonstration plots. They figured out who was the best farmer and they helped them and they say, okay, let's everybody see what this farmer did. Uh, now it was a three year effort. It didn't happen in three months, but over three years, the farmers learned how to produce better quality product in higher quantities, more reliable, and the brewery was buying from the aggregator. And, yeah. and over this period, the farmer's income doubled or tripled. And, and so you take a family that goes from $500 a year to $1,500 a year. Now, that may not sound like much, but that's transformational for that local farmer. I mean, that means she can feed her children better. She can give them shoes so they can go to school, better clothing, better diet. And, and the aggregators, they're doing fine because now they have a local customer that they didn't have before. And, and they just keep expanding the program and the breweries buying more and more products for them. And over a period of time, other companies noticed, agri agribusiness companies, gee, the farmers in this region seem to be producing high quality goods. They built factories and distribution centers in the region. And within wow. three years, now the aggregator is not only selling, expanding into many, many villages, but they're now selling crops to the baby food manufacturer in Rwanda. If you think about so the they, they've grown, they've grown their reputation for, yeah, for quality absolutely. and, open and their productive capacity. And everybody's making more money. But now it's self-sustaining because the farmers are more productive. And yeah. so uh, and the aggregators can take this. They, have, they can store it. They can have refrigerated uh, facilities. And, and now they're selling to a cluster, what Michael Porter would call a cluster, agribusiness cluster, mm -hmm. and going global. 
and everybody is winning. And so when I get back, Michael, to the free lunch, they could have done this 50 years ago. I mean, there was nothing you know, really yes. new here. What was new is thinking about how bringing people together in relationships. This is Helen Sharman, Britain's first astronaut on the Workplace Evolution podcast. It's the only podcast to give you real space and time to think about the workplace. It's people, planet and profit that each box is being ticked. The, the employees are being developed. You've reduced the, the, the carbon emissions and they've, they've acquired new customers as well along the way. So every community has a local supply base that's yeah. somewhat inefficient. Uh, it doesn't know how to use technology. It doesn't know how to connect to uh, national or global companies. But if you can invest at the front end, or it's talent, you know, a field, Michael, you know, that, you, that you talk a lot about, because we had another example in El Salvador, you know, where most of the young population is uneducated and unemployed, and the only activity they get into is criminal activity, you know, drugs. And, and yet there are local companies there. There are retailers, there are hospitality companies, there are local businesses that are starving for employees. They can't hire the employees. So again, we have this demand and supply imbalance. Uh, we have a supply of unqualified labor, demand for qualified labor. So if you come in the middle of this, and go to the training centers and say, let's go to the companies. Well, what are the skills and capabilities that you would need in entry level employees? Okay, now we understand that. Now we can work with the government to try to encourage uh, previously unemployed people to come in off the streets, you know, and get the skills and capabilities. And now the training program, every time they place somebody at one of the local companies, they charge a fee. And, and the fee more, you know, pays them for their training and education and outreach uh, and the subsidy for the uh, students to go to the program. Uh, and, and again, now we have an equal, once we've set this up, it's in an equilibrium that's self-sustaining because yeah. the companies now have lower cost supply of talent of high quality talent, which it turns out to be. Uh, the training programs have their job. You know, they're happy to pay the training programs to do this. Training programs have revenues. Uh, they can sustain themselves and get better. And people who were previously unemployed and seeking lives of crime now have productive career paths in local yeah. businesses. So, but it took that, you know, front end investment and this connection uh, to yeah. connect previously people, suppliers of talent or goods and services to the corporate sector, uh, yeah. in which everybody wins. It's a long-term gain as well. I mean, these things, as you said, that was a three-year project uh, with, with the, the first project you, you mentioned. And in El Salvador, I mentioned this, talent takes time to come through. That's so. why you need the balanced scorecard. Companies are only looking at quarterly profits. The investment you have to make to set up these relationships and the training and, and the infrastructure, you know, is going to hit your quarterly profit line. But if yeah. you have a scorecard which gives you credit for this investment and ultimately will hold you accountable for the payoff of societal gains in the communities and uh, a, a better environment because of better agricultural products, now you have the incentive and the motivation to make these types, as you say, to get involved in a long game here, not just try to get the cheapest source of supply coming from uh, South America all the way yeah. to Uganda. Harvard and your, your colleagues actually do have research that states that acting on community and societal issues, you know, does have a, a longer term return yeah. on investment. 
Yeah, no. So your employees of the company, they're feeling good because they're not only working for the company and getting paid, but they know their company is making a difference in the world. And employees are more likely to join the company that's showing that they're making a positive impact, a positive difference to pre to you know people who are the new suppliers, and also to de- demonstrate that actually we're reducing environmental degradation and reducing child labor, you know, somewhere down the supply chain. Uh, and that makes you a more attractive company to work for. Sometimes customers like that too, you know, if you can show that when they're buying your cocoa or your beer, uh, that actually way at the end of that supply chain, you're helping local farmers escape poverty and creating communities that are self-sustaining and healthy rather than where they are today. I mean, when I think back 20 years, you'd, maybe there were graduate programs or training programs at companies and you'd have that CSR project included in, in it and you'd paint the local nursery or, or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, it seems like you're talking about something very different here and how would you tell the difference really between kind of greenwashing you know painting a picture about community and society and what you're doing and the real thing like what what you've just described yeah so it's it's actually a stages of uh, corporate engagement with society you know so this first stage is do no harm you know so nike you know look at your supply chain and make sure you're not using uh, child labor uh, or unsafe practices where the building collapses uh, or uh, to- toxicity, you know, polluting in your local environment or harming your workers. So the first thing you had to do is almost do no harm uh, and compliance. And the second stage might be more philanthropy, which starts to get at, Michael, what you were talking about. And they say, you have to contribute to society. They say, we do. You know, we give to the local uh, community chest and our employees spend two days a year painting the local school or working at the local food bank and giving out turkeys. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so they document uh, their uh, philanthropic activities. Yeah, you know, and, and that's good. That's nice to be a good citizen. Uh, but it's something you run on the side. You know, then the third is there was some lo- there was some low hanging fruit that it turns out that to avoid pollution, uh, you eliminate waste and actually you become more efficient. Uh, and, and somewhat Michael Porter talked about this as shared value, that you actually lower your costs while uh, doing less harm to your workers and less harm to the environment. But what we're talking about is really the next stage, you know, which is innovation and revenue growth. And, and, and for this, you have to actually build, you can't have CSR or sustainability as a separate department, because what was done in all these things is to take care of the uh, advocates outside, you know, all the noise that was happening outside our corporate building. We set up this CSR office and the uh, sustainability office, and they say, your job is to keep the advocates away from our building so we can come to work and do our real work each day. And, and so they set this up and they gave them a budget and they spent that. And that, that was kind of the CSR activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, that doesn't transform communities and regions, and, it, and it ultimately it doesn't really ch- change, you know, the degradation in the environment. And so what we're talking about, you know, is really the next step. And you should continue to do all the other stuff. I mean, it doesn't make that irrelevant, uh, but it's it's an add-on to actually think about, and this is the, in a way, the free lunch story, think about these inclusive growth strategies. Will you still grow, have financial model, earn your return to shareholders, but more people are included in the well-being. 
But how do you really get the buy-in where it counts across the middle management, which is where real change happens? Yeah, and if you do that and build it in, then you don't, you, know, you don't need to go to the World Bank or USAID for financing. You have a profitable model, you scale it, you know, just like that aggregator uh, in, in Uganda, you know, this small little operation. And he showed up three years later at one of our Palladium conferences and he was wearing this Armani suit. Uh, <laughs> he's dressed very well. And he became a millionaire through this and it was transformational. And, yeah. and, and so he was investing all over Uganda, as you say, going into Rwanda. And this is the dynamics of capitalism. And we just need to unleash that, you know, through yeah. these uh, alliances. There's an entrepreneurial and, spirit that you're that you're talking about here, really. Yeah, that's what capitalism is. You know, it's entrepreneurialism. And, uh, you know, and, and if it works, you know, th then it's scalable, you know, because it, it's. It's it's a you know that's uh, many people don't realize this you know it's a win-win game you know you're actually creating value that didn't exist before, and as yeah. long as you make sure that value is distributed fairly so that everybody who contributed to the value gains from it, you know there's there's lots of resources that just keep generating so you can expand the model uh, throughout the region throughout the continent throughout the world. This is Devon Harris from the original Jamaica bobsleigh team. You're listening to the hottest thing not on ice, the Workplace Evolution Podcast. For me, it sounds all too easy. Can you give me a bit of insight? You, you must have worked with many managing directors, CEOs, to actually try and get buy-in to the balance scorecard. And now what you're talking about in terms of societal and environmental challenges and issues. How do you have that? conversation how do you get their buy-in to the, the the concepts yeah so i mean intellectually as you say it's easy to buy in from these uh, little examples we have uh but uh, it's something they've never done before and it also involves interacting with sectors that they haven't really done before and don't get along with like government or sometimes not ngos and so one of the challenges is if you really want to create these alliances is you have these different sectors who actually don't trust each other. You know, the NGOs who often are not trained in kind of the economics of capitalism feel that anytime a company makes money, it's coming out of a farmer's pocket. You know, they don't understand the win-win relationship. And, and so you have to realize that actually you can, companies can earn a profit and they can benefit local communities can contribute to better health and better environment. Uh, they should not be intention, but you know that that that's uh, that requires some time and trust to de uh, to develop, and also with governments, the idea that you know we have to some things we do have to work with the governments, and you know you do want the governments to get better at education. Uh, you do need governments to do infrastructure, uh, both physical infrastructure and technology infrastructure. You do need governments to enforce contracts. I mean, capitalism depends on contracts. Uh, and if you have a corrupt government and a judiciary that uh, doesn't enforce contracts, that's just not a good place for companies. And, and so the company's objective is, you know, there's too much corruption here. Uh, you know, so we can't do that. You know, we have to invest money up front and then it's uh, the money, we're not allowed to earn the returns that we contractually went to. Yes. Uh, so th these problems, you know, these are real problems. Uh, but uh, if you look across Africa or if you're in India, and, and there are dozens of provinces 
Uh, corruption is not homogeneous throughout that. You know, go to the state where you have, you know, a strong uh, governor, you know, who's running on an anti-corruption campaign and prove the case there. So it just seems a little unfamiliar with them, as even though intellectually it sounds like a good idea. So and I yeah. think this is where some of us external have to kind of help them and coach them through the process. And we'll have to do demonstration projects. What I was really keen on is to relate what you're talking about to very real issues that are going on at the moment. And one of the big ones that's happening right now, as we speak, people are getting their, their vaccine. We're rolling out the vaccine. Pharmaceutical leaders have some very interesting choices ahead of them uh, with regards to whether there should be profit from the vaccine, not for profit, whether they share the knowledge, uh, the intellectual capital that they've, that they've gained from, from the process and the research. Um, some are funded by governments, some are privately funded. It's a real dilemma, Robert. I'm, I'm just interested to get your thoughts on what should be the strategic considerations that these that business leaders in pharmaceuticals should be taking into account. Yeah. So again, uh, this is a long game here. Uh, and, and so you don't want to do something that maximizes their profits in 2021. Think about this as a long game. I think an example, if, if let's go back uh, 25 years. Uh, in 25 years, the epidemic we were concerned with was uh, HIV AIDS. And it wasn't until 1995 that the first really effective antiviral treatment was developed by Merck. You know, the, uh, it was a therapy, not a vaccine, but it was a therapy called Crixivan was the drug. And fortunately, I had the opportunity to uh, get to meet the CEO of Merck. He later joined our faculty uh, at the Harvard Business School after he left. It was Ray Gil Martin. And I said, right, you know, when, when you bought out Crixivan, 1995, you got the US FDA approval. You know, you could have charged anything for that because uh, this was the first therapy that really worked. I said, how did you choose the price? You know, what did you do? And he said, well, it was a very interesting issue. Uh, and I said, we thought about it and we found, you know, and Merck has a mission statement, it's very powerful. It says medicine is for the people, not for profits. You know, we have found, however, that the better we get at producing medicine for people, the profits always follow. So the question is, how did you play out through that dynamic? And he says, what we did is we looked at the currently best alternative to Crixivan. I think it was a drug made by Glaxo Wellcome. And uh, we saw what that was priced at and people were buying it and no one was uh, marching in the streets against that drug company. And we priced it exactly at that point, even though our drug was far, far more effective. Uh, we had to make a profit. You know, we, we can't do this without getting a return on our investment. Priced it into the existing category. And he said the HIV community absolutely loved us. That they understood that we had to make a profit and they really valued that we didn't take advantage of our monopoly position at that point, but just took what you were already paying other drug companies for less yeah. effective therapies. He, he not only priced it, you know, at a level that was, you know, existing in the marketplace already, he had to make a decision about building productive capacity. And he said, the other thing that was really expensive is we knew once the FDA approved the drug, the demand for the drug would be almost you know, be huge. Mm. And we couldn't just say, okay, now we're gonna build the factory and we'll come back in nine months when we built the factory. So we spent several hundred million dollars building the factory for Crixidin 
while the drug was going through stage three trials and uh, regulatory approval, betting that it would work. Wow. Uh, so that when it was approved on day one, we could start producing and distributing the vaccine. And, and so a lot of people that get angry at drug companies don't understand, you know, these, you know, quite difficult uh, decisions that have to be made under uncertainty. I mean, ex post, you know what yeah. happened. But when you're in the middle of this, you don't know whether this is going to work or not. And, and, and so they made, a, you know, I thought those two decisions were really dramatic uh, and, and were really, you know, showed, you know, a commitment for the people and for society on how to benefit from the drugs they were creating. And, and so I think if they can keep that metaphor, that story in line, I think that will help the drug companies as they think about the pricing of these and, and have differential pricing uh, and recognize that, you know, to get that returns and over some you know, period of time and reward the people that invested for them for five or seven years when there were no profits. Hey gang, this is Mr. Motivator on the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Now listen, get up off that chair and sort that belly out. I said exercise, not extra fries. You hear me? Say yeah. As, as you know, Bill Gates has suggested that, that governments drive a green tax, you know, to get us thinking about these environmental issues that uh, that you've described and for us to be carbon zero by, by 2050. What, what would you say to those listeners that who believe that social and environmental issues are really the role of government and, and not the role of business? Yeah, I think that that's kind of a too simplistic a dichotomy here. Uh, one of the problems in the environment is I think government has not done enough uh, to really price out the negative externality, as the economists will call it, of, of environmental degradation. Businesses' strategies would be much simpler if, if we could get a price on carbon uh, and uh, think about the uh, the greenhouse gases. Uh, and, uh, and, and then businesses will optimize with respect to it. I mean, they'll change their production processes. Uh, they'll change their usage of it. They'll be creative in how they generate energy. Uh, and, and it's very hard to do that. It's really as hard for business to do that when the current price of greenhouse gas emissions is zero. Because uh, you, you, then you really are forcing some businesses that want to be environmentally responsible to really get a hit that they don't get directly compensated for. So, uh, you know, I, I certainly am with Bill Gates. I mean, it's hard to think of a solution to the greenhouse gas emission problem without having a price on carbon. It sounds like at the moment businesses are taking a short-term hit to deal with some of the challenges Bill Gates uh, has, has described, and actually they're going to need a, a bit of government help uh, initially to do what you've what you've described, because the temptation is still there in business to make an easy profit, isn't yeah. it? To yeah, make that if, profitable. Yeah, so let me explain the dynamic. Suppose we don't have a carbon price and business tries to invest in all these other uh, fuel sources, uh, energy sources. No, what's going to happen to the stock of uh, oil and natural gas in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait uh, and around the world? You know, if they're using less, the price drops. And all of a sudden they're going to say, well, we got, we got to maximize what we can get out of this before the window really shuts down. And so the price of oil and gas is going to, just going to drop hugely. And, and so there'll be a huge economic advantage for those companies when the price drops to not use wind power, solar power. And, yeah. and so you actually need that buffer 
that says, you know, we're not going to let the price of carbon-based fuels drop below a certain price so that your investments in solar or wind or hydro, you know, will not become economically unprofitable, you know, should the price of the raw material price of oil and natural gas plummet. So it's hard to think of a, of, of a sustainable solution here without pricing that. And we don't have to do it all at once. I mean, only, you know, just start going, you know. So put it in a 10% of what you think the price should be and just raise it 10% a year. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't have to go in overnight because it's going to take time to adjust, uh, to put in yeah. a new technology. So, I mean, they're kind of set. And the other thing on this is it shouldn't be a tax on the economy. Ideally, what you should do is whatever money you raise by this tax, you should give back to the people in a per capita tax. Uh, dividend. So one of the reasons that people and companies object to this is it just looks like a way for the government to get more money. So I guess my preferred solution here is a revenue neutral carbon yes. tax because uh, the poor people are going to get hurt. They're going to be paying more for the goods and services they purchase. So let's go take the amount that's raised, divide by the population, get everybody the same amount back. That'll get much more higher percentage of income to low income people to help offset uh, this. And that way it won't be a drag on the economy. Well, let's hope President Biden's listening uh, <laughs> and he has the strategic thinking skills that, that you've described and, and he's got some big decisions ahead of him as, uh, as well in regards to that strategy. Yeah. I, the other uh, thing the governments can do, this gets into my area of accounting and disclosure, because there's a lot of stuff on ESG reporting, uh, and that's particularly active in the UK. Uh, and I think the environmentalists uh, have lost a lot of the game when they agreed to be the E in ESG. Uh, let's just focus on E, which is energy, you know, environment. Uh, yes. Because how you measure yes. governance is really questionable. Societal, you know, we agree with and, and we've talked about how to do this. But let's get an intense focus just on the environment and not just let's, you know, if the real danger, if the imminent and existential danger is greenhouse gases and whatever the scientists decide. I'm not the scientist at this stage. You know, what, what is it you really are concerned about? Let's just measure that. Let's get good at measuring that. Let's not get into generalized kinds of uh, good, you know, good governance kind of processes. Let's focus on the crisis at hand and start measuring it so we can managing it. And, That's uh, right. We don't have that in our language quite just yet, do we? In, in our common language to discuss that measure. And it'd be great if we did. You know, we have this generalized view of ESG. S and G is nice. E is existential, not just environment. If you believe that, and and let's let's see if we can measure that. You know, we don't have to measure it if we're going to price it. The UK actually, we have COP26 coming up. It's all eyes on Glasgow for November 2021, and many politicians will be coming to, together to discuss societal and environmental emergencies, I would describe them, that, that are faced by, by the planet. Things like energy use, water use, f food poverty has been very high on the agenda over here. Do you believe that the, the politicians will bring real strategic change uh, this decade? And you know, do, you, do you have a message to any of the business leaders that, that are out there? Yeah, I'll, I'll be better at the second than the first in prediction whether the politicians will do it. But uh, and again, don't think about ESG uh, as a single acronym. It's, it's three quite different things and focus maybe on ENS and societal 
as we've discussed, think about how government can partner with business to enable the capitalistic model to benefit the people who currently are worse off or have been left behind by connecting them as these uh, suppliers of goods, services, and talent. And, you know, that's, that's separate from the environmental. The environmental is a completely different discussion from these kinds of, not, not completely different, because uh, some, you know, in agriculture, you know, we can stop people from burning down the, the uh, Amazon and, and, the, uh, and the palm forests in Indonesia by better agronomic processes. So those are really win-win opportunities of showing how by empowering local farmers and, and making them more productive, more efficient, uh, and better farmers, we will not only improve them, but we'll improve the environment. You know, if you really feel climate change is an existential uh, crisis, you have to be strategic. You know, strategic means put disproportionate amount of attention and resources on a relatively narrow set of activities. And, and so think a lot about focusing, you know, we talk, I talked about that earlier, on, on the greenhouse gases as a particular point of pain and uh, how to do this in ways that really will engage corporations, not in a punitive sense, but in a positive sense. Uh, and that is going to require some pricing. Well, look, Robert, that, that really is all, all the questions and, and, and time that we've got together. Thank you so much for your, your, your insights and in this new era of strategy that, that's ahead of us. What, what are the next steps for you? What, what does the next kind of chapter in your career look like? And, and what are you going to be working on, Robert? Well, I actually have, you know, three prongs of themes. Uh, certainly one is to take what are currently these uh, isolated examples of Indonesian uh, cocoa plantations in Uganda, corn growing and employment in Central America, and just scale them up and show that they are generalizable and how to get the uh, executive teams uh, really to agree this, can, this is feasible and can be done. We're going to continue on our healthcare delivery work, so maybe sometime we'll talk about uh, its impact on the national health services uh, of how we can deliver better outcomes to patients at lower cost, and we definitely have some ideas on that. Uh, and the third area we haven't talked about is I'm working on risk management, and another Harvard Business Review article that came out two months ago was on what we call novel risks, uh, of which COVID is, you know, these are the risks that we didn't plan for, didn't foresee, we didn't mitigate in advance. And the question, how do we get better at not having these risks be novel and surprises and think about them in advance? So I wish you every success with rolling that out, uh, The this next exciting chapter of your career. And well, they, they say hope isn't a strategy, but I, I do hope what you've shared becomes more commonplace uh, in for our generation and the next generation. Uh, for those that, that uh, are listening, you can find out more about what Robert's up to via um, Palladium's website, uh, thepalladiumgroup.com and Harvard Business School, of course, hbs.edu. And uh, that's all really. Many thanks for, for joining us, Robert. It's been a delight to, to meet you and, and good luck with that next chapter. Well, thank you, I've really enjoyed discussing this wide range of issues with you. That was the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Many thanks to Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group, for making this podcast possible. If you want to contact us with your feedback and ideas, check out the podcast notes on how to get in touch.